Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. Welcome back. This is the podcast that translates President Trump. We take a look at the current administration. We address the existential threats to America. Amity Schlaes joins us today. She's the best-selling author of the book, The Forgotten Man. We'll talk to her about her new book, Great Society, A New History. Amity, welcome back. Um, well, it's not the radio show. It's our pod, but we're getting a lot of the same audience. And I must tell you, I think everyone in our radio audience bought and read uh, the Forgotten Man. If they didn't, out of their own will, we made them do it because it was required reading for listeners to the Bennett Radio Show. Now we have a new book uh, and uh, called Great Society. Uh, can you can you start by tracing if there is a connection, a line uh, between Forgotten Man and Great Society? Well, Forgotten Man is about the forgotten man of the 1930s, the person left out by the social experiment, the person bulldozered over by the social experiment that was the New Deal. This book, Great Society, is about the silent majority, those people who were left out, black and white, by Lyndon Johnson's great social program in the 1960s. So it happened again. And What's interesting is the Great Society and the New Deal are both important markers in our history, but the one that costs our government more, costs our taxpayer more day-to-day is the Great Society. In a way, it's more significant to us than the New Deal. It costs us more in terms of money. Did it cost us in other ways? I mean, every year in the budget, commitments that we have made because of the Great Society um, are, are, are more dollars than right. the commitments we made, which is essentially Social Security from the New Deal. So the New Deal opened the door. It was the wedge. But the Great Society made sure the door would always be open for, for the government to go out and collect money. Is this, about, um, is this book about government overreach? This book is about government overreach. Some of the listeners will know The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, which was a very interesting book published a long time ago. I know Bill knows it well, um, about how the planners who planned the Vietnam War were fools. They bombed when they shouldn't bomb. Then they bombed even more because their spreadsheets said they should bomb, a kind of business school madness that led to the both the, the tragic management of the war and the tragic retreat. My book now, Great Society, is a, says, wow, there was a domestic best and the brightest. That is, a group of guys politicians thought were geniuses uh, and whom politicians allowed to plan, let's say, everything down to the detail with the pretense that the planners know what's best for people. And in the case of um, sometimes there were some of the same people like McNamara went over to the World Bank and planned domestic policies for countries such as this would be Robert McNamara, the defense secretary. After he failed with Vietnam, he went over to the World Bank and planned birth control and forced abortion eventually. Yeah. You know, vasectomies, um, you know, no choice. Uh, so so it's very interesting. The best and the brightest at home, that is our respect for arrogance and genius had tragic consequence for us at home. Um, In the United States, there was this idea that we could plan exactly what would make people want to work. Uh, We had a guaranteed income program, for example, that we tried to get through in 1969, or we would plan exactly how much Medicare would cost. Oops, that didn't work. It cost multiples of what we thought. And each time the planners were confounded 
so I guess, um, and Bill, you'll know about this, the, the, the greatest fool and in the way the most tragic is Sergeant Shriver in this book who led the war on poverty, that poverty's are. But another great fool, Bill, I, I never imagined um, I would cover so much was Walter Ruther, the union leader who meant well, the leader of the great United Auto Workers who, together with Henry Ford, gutted our auto industry to consequence we live with today. Let's back up, um, and I should have done this earlier. What was the main idea, whose idea uh, was the Great Society or phrase? What was the main idea of it? And give us the major elements, programmatic elements of it, just to remind us. Well, the main idea was actually just ambition. As in the case of President Trump, for example, when you say, I want great, that that's awfully, you don't say, I want good. And in fact, Walter Lippmann, um, the commentator who, who worked right. in the 30s and way before, wrote a book called The Good Society, which was kind of a rebuke to people who wanted great, whether on re- left or right. He said, we'll, we'll take good if we can ever get good. The actual prominence of the Great Society phrase was from England, um, and in, it was a common phrase among the Fabians, the socialists. Great society. They talked about that. So th- so that's interesting. I think Lyndon Johnson just liked the sound of it. So you want to imagine an ambitious new president taking advantage respectfully but very consciously of the tragedy of Kennedy's death to rally a majority in both houses, Democrats, and that's part of the story, and do something everyone's going to remember. And what would that be? Well, it might be finishing the New Deal of his mentor, Franklin Roosevelt. Johnson was a mentee of Roosevelt and much noticed by Roosevelt because, sorry, yeah, Johnson got things done in Texas when he was a young congressman for the New Deal. So, and then also whatever else I can add in that will make people remember me. What was the great, (laughs) what was the great vision, the informing vision? We are going to what? We're, we're going, okay. So then we're at, where it was laid out. Johnson went to the University of Michigan, no accident, by the way, because that's where the unions were, right? Michigan, and said, I'm going to fix life in three places, countryside, city, and classroom, three C's. But the emphasis at first was Johnson said, I'm going to cure poverty. He didn't say, I'm going to alleviate poverty. He said, I'm going to cure it and provide help and opportunity. This is the beginning. So there'll be no more poverty. And to people who had served in World War II, which we won, um, this seemed possible. You know, uh, mopping up action, uh, getting rid of the 15 or 20 or 10 percent of the the suffering. That is, that would be the share of the population that was officially in poverty. And we're going to define poverty and data are part of this. So we created a new national government poverty measure. Molly Orshansky, the a sociologist did this with the Labor Department and so on. We said, looky here, we're going to get rid of this. They didn't say we're going to pay off poor people so they watch television and don't riot. They said we're going to get rid of poverty. And what happened was we began to pay out. And instead of curing poverty, we just sort of made it permanent, didn't we, Bill? Okay, that's one. Yeah, I mean, so that's one office, which is the Office of Equal, uh, excuse me, the OEO, Office of Economic Opportunity. And then what else did we do? Well, we did Medicare. What's wrong with adding an amendment to Social Security so we can take care of old people who are 
you know, suddenly can't pay for the health care. It sounds very likable and not too big. We did that. We thought it would be a small program. Medicaid was supposed to be a small program, too. And one of the characters in my book is Wilbur Mills, who was the, the powerful chairman of the Ways and Means Committee um, who worked on this. And he grew very angry with Johnson when, after a year or two, we saw that Medicare and Medicaid would cost, well, multiples of anyone's arithmetic. Um, those are two things I can think of right now. Um, I count Nixon in, in this book as a great society person because he expanded food stamps, the program mightily, and food stamps were part of this. No one should starve. Uh, no one was, almost no one was starving. So that was a, a misrepresentation. But we expanded food stamps very much because Nixon wanted those votes. Nixon wanted to be in the center. Um, and the list goes on like that. Other parts, which you know so well, are the cultural parts, the creation of public television and radio, um, the subsidy of universities, and you've worked so much on that. I mean, you know more than I do about that, Bill. Um, but the, the subsidy of universities, which paradoxically caused tuition to go up because sure. money that flows in just lets you raise prices, doesn't it? And, and this is work Bill Bennett is done. Um, I, I, I could go on, but a, a lot of the, we, one writer, um, Joe Califano, who worked for President Johnson, is a very good writer and a very honest man, said, we live in Lyndon Johnson's America. We live in yeah. what he created. So, so many aspects of our life come from the great society. Special interest to me, because you said classroom. Was that the main stuff, the universities, the public television? What about all the Chapter 1, Title 1, Title 2, Title 3? Is that part of the great society, or is that come later? Well, some of that comes from that period. Um, You know more about that than I. I I focused, you know, I also focused on Keynesian economics. That is the idea, again, planners can manage the whole thing and predict exactly what GDP and inflation will be. Um, But but yes, the the beginning of the titles that there would be funding for, you know, lunches and so on. Um, all, uh, some of that comes out of there, and some of that comes out of, as you know, the seventies expansion. Yeah, I, I, all I remember now—I mean, I, I remember a few other things—but something like a trillion dollars has been spent on Title One and education, with no discernible positive effect on the education of the young. So, uh, anyway, that's just—that's uh, just one one piece I remember. But all right, so here are these great plans, uh, best laid plans, right? Or maybe not so best laid. But big plans, and what happens? A, what happens? B, uh, you mentioned Nixon. Was uh, there Republican uh, support and cooperation in the Great Society? Well, it became sort of a consensus that we need to do this. And after Johnson became unhappy with his poverty program and discovered that it was actually encouraging riots, um, which it was, if you go back and look at the community action is what they called it, plans, um, they're heinous in that they basically go into towns and exhort people to politicize themselves and and sometimes cause disruption, um, which was kind of disconcerting to mayors who, who were elected actually in the towns and had their own poverty offices. Uh, uh, you know, that mess, and I have a chapter about the anger of the mayors, including Sam Yorty of L.A., 
Um, but after that, Johnson switched gears or switched directions and said, okay, uh, curing poverty through politicization of people in towns, it wasn't just enfranchisement, it was politicization, doesn't work. So I'm going to build like crazy. I'm going to spend tens of millions, um, you know, many, many on building in cities. And there we just sort of continued urban renewal, which actually displaced a lot of people and made them feel um, less empowered rather than more. In addition, um, a key speech by Johnson, just sticking to Johnson, Johnson was basically for equality of opportunity, uh, you know, a kind of extension of Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But over time, he decided that wasn't enough. And at Howard University, he gave a key speech about a year after the original Michigan Great Society speech where he said, we've got to basically have affirmative action, that you can't just give people a quality of opportunity. You have to assure they have an equal equal shot at victory and even, um, you know, and babysit that all the way. And what's interesting about that speech was I'm not sure everyone in the Howard audience liked it when you watch the video. Um, I'm not sure the president, Mr. Nebret, Nebret of, of, of Howard liked it because his own remarks were, were markedly more conservative when you go back and listen to it. But that was a real change for America to go from equality of opportunity to equality of result. And, uh, that, and, and that's what we live with. I think that's a big legacy. I don't want to get ahead here, but it seems to me if we were to try to summarize what the Great Society wrought – uh, it seems to me, if you had to pick one thing, I would say greater dependence on government. Would it have been better yeah, to I, say our task is not to cure poverty? Our task is to lift people from dependence. Our, our, and that's what we started with at the beginning. John Kogan of Hoover Institution, to mention another book, which I have great respect for, wrote, quantified all this. <laughs> All the way in the high cost of good intentions, his book, which recently won the Hayek Prize. And, you know, in my book, I have charts at the end for you, and I tell the story of the people. But what happens is we train them into dependence, starting, if you want to be um, kind of thematically accurate, what you want to say is before the Great Society was called the Great Society, we were already promoting the Great Society through urban renewal, through the bulldozers that went through the cities beginning in the 50s through expropriation because when eminent domain um, was originally conceived, we didn't think it was for a developer who comes to town with money to build a stadium. We thought eminent domain was for a highway or, you know, an army barracks, maybe a school. And the, the definition of eminent domain in this period of expropriate, the permissible expropriation was expanded like a rubber band. So we took black communities and also other ethnic communities, mostly we bulldozed over their apartment buildings they might not own, they sometimes did own, and built great ugly blocks. The, the aesthetic is part of this, right? Such as pruitt Igo in St. Louis. And then we tried to improve that in the 60s and dumped endless money into improving failing urban renewal and highways. And this was a, a source of great disillusionment for Northerners in cities, white and black. They, they lost their neighborhood. And Moynihan kind of writes about this. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, it's a book of characters, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan is kind of both the clown and the genius of the book, I would say. 
because he made many errors, but he was always honest about them. And he had a wonderful um, faith in trying to do good through government, a bit like Edmund Burke. And was so he one of the architects, though? Was he one of the he architects? He was architect and also he's like – they're like tragic characters. I think there are three tragic characters in my book, by which I mean people who did wrong and saw that they got the opposite result to what they intended and were honest enough to comment on it as they went down. And Moynihan is one of those people. He learned from experience. He said, okay, let's not – Feed the horses to feed the sparrows, which was um, his term for what welfare money did. You feed a lot of horses, that would be social workers, right? Create a lot of social work as social work establishment, and then the little sparrows, the people who actually need the money from the social workers, get so little. So he switched to a guaranteed income program. But I will say I'm less friendly to Moynihan than most because Moynihan wrote the architecture plan, the government planning program for architecture, in which he he argued we should have a lot of modern architecture. And modern architecture in that period meant big, unfriendly blocks where people don't like to live. Um, so, he, you know, when you think about what was our housing policy post-war and the Great Society was just the apogee of it, it was, let's have, for the middle class, let's have out Tocqueville, okay, buy a house, become part of a community, go to church and school there, create new communities, little Tocqueville lands, these would be suburban towns. For poor people, the philosopher we gave to people was not Tocqueville, it was Karl Marx. Live in a tall block like in East, like in Budapest, like in Leningrad, and uh, have a giant lawn in front of it that nobody likes with no commerce there, because commerce isn't important to daily life, so they have to go half a mile to get I don't know what, a quart of milk. I want to interrupt you because you know so much. And when you say one thing, it makes you think of three other things. I want to stay on one track for a minute. Who are the other two? Yeah, I have trouble with that. That's all right. No, you know, it's not trouble. It's smart. It's smart. You know so much. Who are the other two heroes? The two tragic heroes, uh, Shriver. Sarge, Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, so what is Shriver there? He's a nice man. He's related to the Kennedys. He's married to Eunice, who is a very energetic person. Very successful in her way, Special Olympics, really a big deal. So you have, what did Shriver do? He did the Peace Corps. Peace Corps had a lot of good and a lot of bad in it. It's intensely naive to send a young person to a village and make him sort of a quasi-czar in the village, right? You know, a a source of funds at least often, right? The, The Peace Corps person comes with the pipes to irrigate the village or whatever. So suddenly he's an important figure. He's a little Robert Moses in, in, in whatever town, um, in whatever, you know, stricken place in Africa or Asia. Um, so Shriver did that. And then he did the office of economic opportunity as a result of his success with the Peace Corps and became the poverty czar for America. Shriver saw that his spending and and um, wasn't always getting the result he wanted, and w- money was flowing to political causes from the poverty office, which is crazy. Uh, and he said, "You know, I, I've sort of I've screwed up." Um, and Johnson th- certainly thought he'd screwed up and shipped him off to be ambassador in Paris. Who's the third tragic hero? Walter Ruther, and he's okay. big. Now, now that's not a name young people have heard, but it is a key name, Walter Ruther, R-E-U-T-H-E-R. German-American, socialist, lowercase s, not a communist, didn't report to Moscow, 
Um, I could not find that he reported to Moscow. He was just wrong all by himself. He was kind of a European style social Democrat. So we don't have these people. You don't have to make the case that people reported to Moscow and often you're, you know, you're impugning their motive and who they are. These people were wrong all by themselves in a very American way. And Ruth, Ruth or, uh, was head of the UAW. He helped to build the United Auto Workers of the mighty U.S. auto industry. Wonderful. But he really believed that we could afford anything and that the social democracy of union land should be extended to the rest of the country. He believed in civil rights. He provided the bail money for Martin Luther King. That's very lovable. Um, you know, we're for that. But he, together with Henry Ford, made automaking so expensive that Toyota hadn't in. I want to interrupt you again because you've got about 10 minutes left, and I just want to get the big picture. We're talking to Amity Slays. The book is Great Society and New History. What was the – two two major questions. What was the main thing wrong with the vision of the Great Society, vision or programs, the Great Society? What did they fun, get wrong fundamentally? And second, yeah. do we live in that Great Society today? As you were talking, the person I keep thinking about is the uh, one of the obvious heirs of all this was Barack Obama. I mean, community organizer and everything else. But but make that a third issue if you want. Go go ahead. What was fundamentally wrong with the vision, and do we still live in that vision? Do we still live in that notion? That mistake. We live. Anyone who thinks smart people are better than regular people lives in that vision. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like uh-huh. you would call it a McKinsey vision or a B school vision or an engineer's <laughs> vision. I'm so smart that I can plan this because I control all the variables wrong. So the fundamental vision was that intelligent enough, people who are intelligent enough and better educated than regular people can can plan the world. That's what was wrong with it. And the philosopher who saw this and who explained this was Hayek. Um, before it even happened, by the way, because he looked at social democracy in Europe, which is very we great society was our social democracy experiment. Um, and he said, there's a thing called the knowledge problem, which is people who work in government are really insulated from feedback. It takes years for them to get feedback about whether their their school lunch program is good or bad, or their radio show is fair or not fair. And all around them are other people who don't give them feedback. So, of course, what people in a faraway government do for a town, what they do is subpar, if not awful, compared to who has they don't have enough knowledge to make the right decisions. That's a knowledge problem. Whereas a company in a little town gets terrific feedback right away. If the air conditioner it makes isn't as good as the competitor's air conditioner, that company is dead in six months. So imagine in the private sector, we get a barrage of signals. I used to work at the Bloomberg and we would count our hits, right? Every article, they counted the hits for good or for ill. That was interesting. Um, And uh, that, so therefore, leave it to locals, spare what remains of Tocqueville's America to make their own decisions. That was the error. And of course, we live in it particularly um, when you try to have, you see some of the candidates have very clever um, conclusions to how to fix things, such as um, college funding or universal income, and you're like, oh, you're so smart. Glad you have that 
fourth degree, but will this really work for the common man? Um, me, uh, some, first of all, it seems to me some of these are not clever at all, like college college debt. Just forgive it all. Forget it. Never mind. It doesn't exist. That doesn't seem to me clever. That seems to me dismissive and, and, and dumb. But, but uh, isn't a lot of the stuff we're hearing from the Democrats today a doubling or tripling down on the Great Society, like ex- Medicare for everyone? Yes. So you, what happened in the Great Society is we did stuff and it was never enough, so we did more. Okay. Um, and you keep doing more and more and more. Each time you fail, rather than retreating, you expand. That's what Johnson did, and then he gave up. There's a line in the book, you know, when Johnson decided not to run in 68, if not great, then not at all. Count me out, kinder. You know, that was sort of Johnson's attitude. And that's an arrogance, right? So um, we just pick it up. And, and why, you know, I, I think we do live in a great society in America, not only with the fiscal consequences, um, but also in that we're replicating the great society on steroids. And the reason why is that uh, we forgot the forgot. negative what we consequences. Forgot? We forgot the 70s. We forgot oh, all the consequences of the Great Society because the, the part of this was the spending, right? Uh, and we overspent ourselves. Um, and inflation didn't matter at all as now until it did. Yeah. Well, inflation is like you're sailing out beside the peninsula and there's no wind at all. And then you get past the peninsula and wham, your sailboat nearly falls into the water. Because once you pass the peninsula, the wind comes very heavy. Uh, that's what inflation is like. It's not there until it's really there. Uh, um, and we had that in the 70s. One of the characters, the fourth tragic character in my book is Arthur Burns, who was a great, you know, like a Greek figure, a Cassandra who warned of inflation and then actually participated, was complicit in causing inflation um, through closing the gold window, sort of lying to himself about what the numbers said, and therefore created heavy inflation expectation. The wind came. That was the 70s. Um, And we had, you know, our wages couldn't pay for what we wanted to buy. That's what inflation is. is, We're talking to Amity Schles uh, about her new book, Following the Forgotten Man. Uh, This is Great Society, a new history. Um, Is that kind of son of Forgotten Man or? Maybe, huh? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, we thought yeah. about calling it "Silent Majority." Okay, um, but is, is and maybe I should have. But it's a book about the Silent Majority. Is Donald Trump in any way a counter uh, force to this uh, notion of the Great Society? We can fix everything from on high. Well, he says great, but Donald Trump does not believe in genius the way some presidents do. He doesn't believe in a certain elite, and I hate to use that word elite because. Guess what? We're all part of it if we're on your show. But a certain a certain leadership, he believes in a certain he doesn't believe in a certain leadership running everything just because they're smarter and have the right degrees and the right ties or the right black got, shirt and the right. Ed, I got to tell you, know, I got to tell you a quick story. I was having lunch with a group I have lunch with. You know, every single one of them, uh, r- famous uh, elite uh, smart guys. Um and they've written great books, but I can't I can't tell you their names. Anyway, we used to have lunch once every six weeks at the Palm. And just before the election, uh, we went around the table, who are you going to vote for? And I was shocked. I said I was going to vote for Trump. The other three said no one or Hillary. And I said, why? And we went on and on and on. But then at the end, I looked at them and I realized these guys who make their living by writing books and smart op-eds, 
I said, you know, the reason you hate him, and, and you know, there are lots of reasons people have for not liking Donald Trump. I understand. I happen to like him, but um, is I said, no one uh, who has ever read any of your columns or books has ever been to a Trump rally, ever. That's not where they go. The people who go to Trump rallies don't read your op-eds or buy your books. Is that fair? Often. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I have Trump readers. I mean, in my case, I have both. I mean, you know, I have every interesting people all around. No, 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 no. But, but I'm talking about him, not you. I'm talking about him. And by the yeah. way, the, uh, the elite is not just on this show. As soon as we're done with talking to you, we're going to be talking to our listeners. So. Right, right. And the listeners will give you that knowledge feedback of the quality of the interview. You know, that's that's the reality. So. So, yeah, but it's really kind of I think the most important thing to say is from the history point of view is who a a character in the book who's not tragic, although he starts out um, with a lot of trouble is Ronald Reagan. And, you know, I, the book starts out with his period at General Electric, where he was learning about ideas from a forgotten character named Lem Boulware. Uh, um, but Reagan saw that both right and left wanted common sense policies. That's really what became Morning in America. And those voters, those blue collar voters who, who, who helped Reagan, many Democrats, many Teamsters, um, then showed up for Trump as well. Yeah. There's that continuity. Okay. Okay. Am I, I wrong? Am I wrong? No, I think no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm one of them. I was, you know, grew up in Brooklyn. I was a Democrat all my life. Someone early in my life looked pointed in the street and said, "There goes the Republican." You know, the one who was in Brooklyn. And uh, there goes the Republican. Yeah, right? I was Irish. You're, you're talking to someone in Brooklyn. Yeah, Irish, Irish Catholic. <laughs> you know, family. Anyway, no, I was Reagan, and I'm. Trump and so on. But how do we get out of this? If we're still in it, how do we get out of it? Is, is this a, is this a, a, a straight jacket that we are in and just not, cannot break? Well, in the, in the book, I tell stories of three companies that helped us get out of it. That is, real life gets us out of it. If we allow okay. the economy okay. to grow fast enough, and, and one of those companies was Intel. Um, okay. you know, Bob Noyce is a character in the book, because what the company said is, we think we can do a lot for society with our little company. Uh, it, you know, mainly we can give society jobs. <laughs> that's, okay. that's the okay. where we can train people. Um, and guess what? They can even train occasionally. A company that makes something high tech, like a chip, can even train poor people. There's a very interesting story in the book of a, an Indian reservation, Native American reservation, where in, Intel's forerunner, Fairchild, had a factory because they were committed to Native Americans in um, in New Mexico, it was. And they created lots of jobs. They became the largest private sector employer of Native Americans. Um, but that experiment was washed out, crowded out by the Great Society experiments with Native Americans, which only strengthened the reservation culture and in a negative way. So, so, so I believe in American commerce and I believe it can deliver surprises, but you have to allow it to. So, but you talked about the importance of growing the economy fast. Is this fast enough for you now? Pretty fast. Well, it, it, it would be fast if it were easier for small companies to start. I see. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, and this is also the vindication. I mean, long ago, Adam Smith said there are just a few things you need for a strong economy, strong economy, tolerable taxation, relatively easy money, you know, and people being left alone. I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the quote. It, it, that's 
kind of what we have now. We have a less government, not more culture, even if we don't always deliver on our commitments there. And we've seen how much the 401ks of even working people have grown um, since we've had that culture. And we have to say thank you to Congress. Thank you to the president for some of that, right? We have to. That's just the way it is. So you're a Trump Um, gal, right? Never mind. I'm not a Trump gal. Okay, right, Don't say mind. that. I'm not a Trump gal. I'm a conservative okay. historian. Okay, but right, but, right, okay, but okay. I, I'm willing to acknowledge that okay. that when you leave the economy alone, it grows real nice. Okay, good, good. Uh, you do great work in lots of ways. You write great books. Tell us a little about your foundation as well, please. Oh, well, one of the things that's important for young people is to know that academic excellence is rewarded. And we all believe in scholarships for poor people and disadvantaged people. But right now, scholarship land is almost all heading in that direction. So at Coolidge, which is named after President Calvin Coolidge, the hardworking president who balanced the budget, we created a scholarship like a road for academic merit to honor high schoolers. And this scholarship um, well, this year it has. We have four scholarships because it's a full ride to any college. Um, so that would be a, a very big commitment, over three hundred thousand dollars per wow. kid. Wow. Um, and we have well over five thousand kids have signed up to apply this year. How do they do it? They um, they go to the Coolidge Foundation website, uh, CoolidgeScholars.org, and they sign up. and And part of the charm of this, from our point of view, is they have to become acquainted with Calvin Coolidge to do this. So we require two essays on Calvin Coolidge uh, this year, um, and we help them out with with you know for primary documents available on our website, but. The point of the scholarship is never going to be big. We also have a much larger program for for our finalists called the Senators Program is to remember to strive for excellence, that striving for excellence can be liberating, and that a lot of people are capable of excellence, people you don't expect, including poor people. So, so it's wonderful to talk about excellence rather than about alleviating need when it Good. comes to funding education. Yeah, excellence can be liberating. I love what George Eliot writes about excellence. Excellence is important because it encourages us about life generally. You know, and I think that's yes. I think that's right. Well, uh, even if we don't make it to excellence, you know, the, you know, we watch a show. The Voice used to be where someone else. Yeah, makes it and we're right. proud and we're that cheer. makes us happy. We're cheer. It, yeah, so we cheer. opportunity cheers us on. Do you remember long ago David Brooks wrote a column about how opportunity and aspiration are important motivators? You know, I look at someone on a yacht and I don't say he's a pig because he has a yacht. I say maybe my children might have a yacht yeah. or well, you know, that's very American. Well, you made another great contribution and you've uh, helped me in my appreciation, reappreciation of Calvin Coolidge. I've got this new uh, book out, uh, three volume, My History of the United States, America, the Last Best Hopes, collapsed into one volume, thousand pages. The single favorite quote I have in there, and it never fails to move me, is Calvin Coolidge's remarks on the death of his son while he was in the White House. I just think it's one of the most beautiful and moving, wrenching um, comments ever, ever made, ever made. Oh, I'm, I, I, well, I'm ordering this one, Bill, but I will say something about Coolidge. One way people have tried to cancel him, to use a modern verb, that is to make him unknown, is to contend that his depression after the death of Calvin Jr. May, rendered him incompetent as president. 
disabled him. And that is not true. No, it isn't. He he passed a great tax cut that made him famous and helped him to continue balancing the budget subsequent to the death of Calvin Jr. and did a number of other things. So I think, you know, one problem is we have to recognize grief and the scale of grief without psychologizing it into oblivion. Sometimes grief makes you stronger. And Saint Paul would in Coolidge's so. case, that right, and they're far, you know, way before. Coolidge has something homiletic about him. He he grew up with the sermon, and his writing is beautiful because it's short and clear, like a sermon, uh, and that's extremely useful. It's the opposite of Woodrow Wilson, right? You got it. You got it. It's another day. It's another day. Another day. Okay. Another book. Wait for your book, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Amity Slays. Uh, the Great Society Thank you, Bill Bennett. History. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. Catch up next week. 